Good evening to everybody. Good to be here yet again for our fourth and final night uh, together. So, God is good. Amen. As you know, I have passions in my heart for certain subjects and certain burdens, very much so. And um, I'm deeply passionate uh, two things that are very strong in my heart. One, people need to know their Bibles. Two, people need to know the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. And when I was 16, I've shared this before, but just briefly again, God gave me a dream, and I'm not a person who's given to dreams. I'm not a person who's given to visions. But very real, God gave me a dream at the age of 16, which was a long, long time ago now. And the long and short of that dream was God was showing me what my passions in ministry would pursue and what they would be. And the text that God gave me was Matthew 22, verse 29, where Jesus, speaking with the Sadducees, who tried to trick him with the question, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because all seven brothers had her. And Jesus, before he gave the answer, he made this remark, and that remark has been the cornerstone foundation of a burden of God that's been with me ever since I can remember. And to quote the verse, Jesus said this, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures, neither do you know the power of God. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures, Neither do you know the power of God. For a third time, you don't know the scriptures, neither do you know the power of God that puts you in error. And the theme that was driving in my heart that night in that dream is because I I, I saw myself being asked by the pastor of a church if I would like to preach. And I said, yes, I would. And in the dream, I saw the pastor go away, and then I saw myself sit down at a, tent, at a table with pen and paper and a Bible. And I began to write out a sermon. Now, I wish every sermon would come that easy. That would be nice if just every time I had a dream, God just gave it to me, I had to wake up and write it out. Wouldn't that be great? But no, it only happened once in my life like that. But... but the text was Matthew twenty two twenty nine. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And I did not realize it till many, many, many years later that that dream was actually God speaking to me about a burden that he would place on my heart. My passion is to help people who have had spiritual experiences to help them get sorted out with scripture. To help them to understand the scriptures so that their spiritual experience is rooted in scripture. And 
I don't apologize for making the statement that people need to know good doctrine. People need to know good theology. People need to have good working knowledge of the scriptures. Often I've heard some people say, I'm a word person. I'm a person of the word. I'm a word person. So I ask them some questions. What do you think about such and such a topic? And they haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. You're not a word person. You're a favorite Bible verse person. And when, when, when I say you need to know doctrine, I, I, you need to be able in your Christian life to embrace the whole counsel of God. You need to be familiar with the themes of Scripture, how those themes are developed, rather than just stay at what I would call a, a Sunday school level of understanding the Bible. Not too long ago, maybe four or five years ago, I took people through a a study of the book of Judges. And a a lengthy study through the book of Judges. Uh, We're just going to work through all the different judges and how they fit in the context of the story. And and the study I was doing was with people who had been in church all their lives. I mean, they were been in church 30, 40 years. And... To me, it was a shocking surprise that you could be in church that long and know almost next to nothing on the book of Judges. That was an incredible, for me, a discovery. I mean, you should be familiar with Gideon. You should be familiar with Samson. You should be familiar with Jephthah and Ehud and, and, and all these, and Deborah and Barak and all these. You should be familiar with them. But people basically had only a very surface understanding of that and that shocks me it really does we need to be people who are disciplined studiers of the scripture because it's so important our faith has got to be rooted not in devotional reading but in study of the scripture we need speaking ministries that are more than exhortational more than devotional more than inspirational People need to know the nuts and the bolts of Scripture. And people need to be taught to read their Bibles and to understand their Bibles. Uh, And and there's a reason for that, because Jesus says if we don't, our, our proneness to falling into error is just far too easy. Far too easy. And yet, we need to know more than the Scriptures. We need to know personal relationship with God himself. We need to know the power of God. The Christian faith is not just a rational faith, it's an experienced faith. We experience God. And that's very, very important. And as I shared with you in the first of our four nights together, uh, I've been privileged to have seen a lot of things. I've been very privileged to have been fathered and mentored by people who really knew and know the power of God in the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I've been privileged to see amazing things by the Spirit of God that a lot of people have have never seen. You know, a lot of people say they believe in, in miracle healings, but you've never actually seen one. A lot of healings that, well, somebody was healed... And you have to take it by faith they were healed because you actually can't see it. 
a sore back or or something or whatever. But have you ever seen a real miracle healing in front of your eyes that cannot be denied? You know, we believe these things, but who's actually seen it? There's a dearth. There's a famine of the miraculous. And that's a shame. We need to see it. And I remember, what, you know, if I, forgive me if I told you the story already, but quickly, that water baptism. Did I tell you that story? You know, with, with the lady who went in the water one way and she came out another way. And I thought, you could not deny it. You, had, you saw it visibly in front of your eyes. She went from being that big to, you know, just whoop. Now, that, now, folks, that's the way to lose weight if you're going to lose weight. But it was just a miracle, you know. And, and, and she was delivered from leg braces. She could hardly walk before. She came out of that baptismal tank worshiping and dancing and rejoicing and put on a show and running up and down stairs. It was a miracle miracle healing that nobody could deny. It wasn't just I have to take it by faith that you had a bad back when you came and you went home feeling better. This was a a dramatic miracle. And we need to know the power of God. Not just say we believe in it. We need to know it, live it, experience it, and have that expect expectancy in churches that we're going to have encounters with the living God. I have said to you before, and I'll say it again by way of emphasis, that if we are Pentecostal people or charismatic people or full gospel people or spirit-filled people, whatever term people like to use to describe that they're people who have experienced a measure of the Holy Spirit in a dramatic way, um, thank God for that, but it needs to be rooted. We, we say these things, we believe in them, but by default, by default, we're still cessationist. Now, when I use the word cessationist, that means I'm referring to the belief that the miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues and the prophecy and the miracle healings only existed in the first century. And now that you have a copy of the Bible, you no longer need the things of the Spirit in outward manifestation. That's called cessationism. And while I can get angry at the doctrine of cessationism, because I think that's robbed the church of the power of God, um, and we say, well, none of us in this room are cessationists. We believe in the things of the Spirit. But when it comes to practice and church services, we are cessationist. We are. Did you come expecting the Holy Spirit to speak tonight? What did you expect? When you get together for church on Sunday morning, do you go in there saying, I wonder who the Lord's going to use today? What words of exhortation are going to come from the body of Christ today? Who has a burden from the Lord? Who's bringing a word from God? Who's bringing a prophetic a slant from the heart of God tonight? Who's going to do that? Uh, and when we come to church without that expectancy if it's ever going to happen, and we let whoever's on the platform do the whole thing. So we are cessationists in practice. We don't come 
with the expectancy. You know, when we hear somebody preach, well, it's going to be a nice word from God, but we're not expecting any divine revelation to take place when we listen. We're not expecting light bulbs to go on in our heads. We're not expecting to be overwhelmingly hearing the voice of God as somebody preaches or teaches. And so while we say we're not cessationists by doctrine, I think by default a lot of the church has become cessationist in attitude because people simply don't come with expectancy. You know, and we need to hear the voice of God. So I'm, I'm concerned that we know both the scriptures. And when I say that, forgive me for the repetition, but it's so important. You need to know theology. You need to know doctrine. You need to know how to handle the scriptures, how to be a worker of the scriptures. You need to know these things. You really do. Because if we don't, then what happens is people who are wake up to the things of the spirit and, and, and all of a sudden you want something new and you start reaching out and you start reading books or watching something on the television or, or getting CDs or whatever and you're hungry and you're hungry and, and you're filling yourself up and you're filling yourself up because you're hungry for something more that you're not getting uh, in, in a church situation. The problem is a lot of the stuff that people get into is not really theologically sound. It's really not doctrinally correct. And you don't know it. What you, you're so hungry, you just take in everything and take in everything and take in everything. And you devour it and devour it and devour it. And you take it in. And, and, and you start meeting in homes and in groups and in prayer meetings and all this, and, which is wonderful. Thank God for the hunger. But without the scriptural proper foundation, you can get yourself into all kinds of disappointing trouble. And I have a heart that should not be. And the passion and the burden of my heart is for people to unite the scriptures with the power of God. They've got to work together. God has never intended his word to operate outside of the context of the power of his spirit. And he's never intended the, your, your spiritual experience to operate outside the context of Scripture. It's word and spirit. It's not one or the other. You must have both. You must. Amen? You must have both. But that requires a whole lot of Discipline on our part. It really does. Requires a lot of discipline on our part. Because what you will discover in when you have spiritual experiences, you know, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, dreams, visions, you hear God speaking to you, all of which I say, yea and amen, Lord, bring it on. Yes, but you do not realize in, in, in such an experience that you become subject to new temptations and trials and challenges that you never knew existed before. You enter a whole new level or different kind of warfare. You enter a whole new kind of challenges and temptations and trials that you didn't even know existed before. 
And if we're not deeply rooted in scripture, the chances are we will not know what to do in those situations. Forgive me for the repetition from last week, but it needs to be said again because these things just stir in my heart. There's no such thing as a clean revival. It doesn't exist in church history and it doesn't exist in scripture either. There's no such thing as a move of the Holy Spirit and everything is holy and perfect. Doesn't happen. It didn't happen in the New Testament. I mean, you talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and what do you get out of it? You get a trouble-filled Corinthian church. You get a messy Corinthian church. You get a, a Thessalonian church that needs to be warned about certain things. The best illustration I can give is when rain falls from heaven, it doesn't matter what seed is in the ground, it will all grow. The good seeds will produce flowers. The bad seeds will produce weeds. It all comes up. There's nothing wrong with the rain. Thank God for the rain. But it causes everything to sprout. In other words, when we pray for revival and there's a presence of the Holy Spirit and there's a moving of the Spirit, we trust that gifts of the Spirit will rise. We trust that good Christian character will arise. We trust that passion for the Word of God will arise. I'm not a prophet, but I can prophesy every move of God. The flesh will arise as well. I can prophesy demonic activity will arise as well. It all shows up. It all shows up. Sometimes there's weird manifestations and sometimes there's great manifestations. Neither one would happen without the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But every response to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily God one. The Holy Spirit brings it on and demons tend to react. Flesh tends to react. It happens because the reality of the presence of God is there. And so you see, we need discernment and we need judgment on these kinds of things. We really do. Because believe you me, I'm a discerning person when it comes to this stuff. I mean, I have seen, you know, uh, worldwide type of revivals and with, with, with television and, and God TV and TBN and, and all these variety of different Christian stations that are out there. You have access to anything going on in the world anywhere, instant. It's all over the place, and, and, and you see these great revivals, and I look at some of this stuff, and I go, oh, I don't call that revival. I call that a whole lot of nonsense. I call that a whole lot of flesh. But people, when they see actions and responses and, and things, it's got to be God. It's got to be God. It's got to be God. And I, I would say yes and no to that. Yes, this presence of the Spirit is there, but not everything that responds is, is of the Holy Spirit. Some of it's just plain old flesh. Some of it is demonic. Some of it's the Holy Spirit. And it takes discernment to know. You follow, you follow my illustration? There ain't nothing wrong with the rain. But whatever seed is in the ground sprouts up, whether it's good or bad. 
So thank God for the rain. But it doesn't mean that everything that happens in the presence of the rain is godly. And I think there's just discernment that is needed. There's real discernment. And what happens is this. The pattern of scripture and the pattern of history is just really this. People are hungry. There's a dearth. There's a famine for the things of God. You're hungry for the presence of God. You're hungry for what you read in the Bible, what you read in the book of Acts. You want to see it happen. When you, when you, when you see this, the New Testament scriptures about, of, of, of the work and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you say, I can't live without that. And there's a hunger and there's a thirsting and people cry out and people pray. And, and, and there's a season of fasting, a season of prayer, a season of calling out on God. Thank God for it. And then there comes the time when God answers the prayer. And there's revival. And when revival hits, so does everything. Everything is brought to the surface. And then what happens after that point is a very conscious decision that every person has to make. And that is after everything begins to happen, you either will receive teaching and submit to correction and receive good theology, good teaching, and good doctrine, or your spiritual experience will cause you to disintegrate. Now, that's important because you know people, and I know people, and I know this country is full of people that have walk that path, who are now so disillusioned, they go to church nowhere, and they trust no church, and they trust no pastor, and they trust no leader, and they just sit at home alone. They have disintegrated. But they have walked through that whole path I just described to you. You either take the teaching, or you fall apart. You do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. When, if I use Jesus as my example, he submitted to the baptism of John the Baptist. When Jesus came out of the water, the heavens opened the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove came down and rest upon Jesus. And then God the Father speaks out of heaven and Jesus hears it. And here's what God the Father says. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now listen carefully. When the Spirit came and rested upon Jesus, God the Father quotes not one, but two Old Testament scriptures. When he says, this is my beloved son, he's quoting Psalm chapter 2. When he says, in whom I am well pleased, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 42. Did you realize that's two quotes? My beloved son, Psalm 2, 
whom I'm well pleased, Isaiah 42. Now, it's important for us to catch this because that's going to speak a whole lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Very powerfully, it's going to speak to us about how to handle the anointing, the Spirit of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus' message was, the kingdom has arrived. You know me well enough by now, you've heard me many times, that I cannot be satisfied. I cannot possibly be satisfied with what I call a reductionist gospel where the goal of gospel preaching is to convince somebody that they're a sinner so they can accept Jesus into their lives so they can go to heaven when they die. Now, I do not want to minimize that and thank God for Jesus saving sinners and to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, thank God for that. But do not reduce the gospel to that. The message that Jesus brought was, was not take me as your savior so you can go to heaven when you die. It includes that, but it's much more. The message Jesus gave was, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom comes in power. And everywhere Jesus preached, it was, the kingdom has come. Repent and believe. The kingdom has come. And not only did he proclaim the message, but through the anointing, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he demonstrated the message. Amen. The message was demonstrated when they let the man through the roof who was paralyzed. Son, your sins be forgiven you. Who's that man? Only God can forgive us. It was going Pharisees. And Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. And he said, look, how about this then? Why don't you get up and walk? And the guy got up and walked. And why? Because he was making a demonstration. If there's power to heal a sick body, folks, there is power to heal sick souls. Demonstrating the message that the kingdom is here. And that's why we have the anointing. That's why there's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because our preaching is to demonstrate the gospel besides proclaim the gospel. The message of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. That means the power to displace the powers of darkness has finally arrived in world history. We can displace spiritual ruin. We can displace physical ruin. We can displace poverty. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to bring people into liberty with our generosity, with our giving, with our love, with our compassion, with the power of the Holy Spirit. The powers of darkness are to be displaced by the power of the kingdom of heaven. That's the gospel that we preach. The message is the kingdom has come. That's the message. If you take away the word kingdom out of the lips of Jesus, you more or less shut him up from speaking in the Gospels. Everything he taught was the kingdom. The kingdom. 
the kingdom. Everything he said was kingdom, 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 kingdom. The kingdom has come. That was his message. Well, who's the king? Jesus, of course, is the king. And you see, when God the Father says, this is my beloved son, Psalm 2. If you read Psalm 2, what God the Father was quoting was all about the king. I've set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. You know, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. He's the king. That's Psalm 2. And when God says, this is my son, he says, look, I'm identifying him as the king of Psalm 2. The message is the kingdom of heaven. Behold the king. You understand it? But that's not the only thing God said. He said, in whom I am well pleased. That's Isaiah 42. Now, you know Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, all those chapters. Those chapters do not speak about a king. They speak about a slave, a servant. They're called the servant songs. The servant of the Lord. Read Isaiah 42.1. Read what it says. Behold my elect whom I've told my servant. I put my spirit upon him and in him my soul is well pleased. Now wait a second. Is God contradicting himself? Is Jesus a king or is Jesus a servant? Which is he? Because in the world, kings don't take the role of servants. They are served by others. They are not servants themselves. But here we have this revelation by God putting those two verses together in the same breath that the kingdom of which Jesus is the king, the kingdom of heaven, which is the message that we preach, is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. Nothing like the kingdoms of this world. In the kingdom of heaven, the king is a servant and the servant is a king. In the kingdom of heaven, it's the first who are last and the last who are first. In the kingdom of heaven, it's those who exalt themselves who are humbled and those who humble themselves are exalted. The kingdom of heaven is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. The church is not a worldly organization. We do not live by the culture of this world. Not at all. What's all this got to do with the Holy Spirit? Everything. Because when God wants to anoint you with power, it's not for you to be recognized. It's power to serve people. Not power for recognition's sake. You follow what I'm saying? You see, in Luke's version, in Luke chapter 4, it says that, that Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In verse 14 of that chapter, after the whole wilderness thing was over, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And I want to suggest to you there's a vast difference between you having an experience of the Spirit of God 
and you walking in the power of it. There is a massive difference between the two. You can have experiences with God, experiences with the Spirit of God, and come out of not come out in power. Power is for people who have learned to serve. Because God gives the power of a king to people who have a heart of a servant. And those are hard lessons for people to learn because we grow up in a world that doesn't think that way. If I get power, it's for me to be on top. No, no. God gives you power not to be on top, but to get underneath and lift. It's power to serve. And therefore, what God has to do is test your heart. And everyone went, hallelujah, testings. You get to go through trials, challenges, difficulties, all because you got spirit-filled. You're now entering new kinds of trials, new kinds of temptations, because before God can trust you with a demonstration of power, he wants to first prove that you have a servant's heart. Folks, we need to humble ourselves. I say this over and over and over at our home church. When I pray in public, sometimes I say this, God, please, I want to be broken before you. I want a contrite heart. Because you resist the proud, I don't want you to give me the stiff arm. I don't want any stiff arms from you, God. I want to be broken, humble, and contrite because I've made this discovery both in personal experience and in scripture. Contrition, brokenness attracts the presence of God to your life. Pride pushes God away. All right? You see, we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. A great conviction that I have is the Holy Spirit is a person. Amen? The Holy Spirit is a person. I, I, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence in my life, in your life. Did you get that? God wants to be personally present in you. Did you get that? I mean, that's phenomenal. That's mind-blowing. The sovereign God who cannot be contained by the heavens and the earth, who's bigger than this whole universe he's created, who's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, this powerful, unbelievable, transcendent God wants to be personally present with you. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence with you. you get it? I don't know if I get it. It's too overwhelming. The gift of the Holy Spirit is so God can be personally present 
with you and to you and talk with you and commune with you and fellowship with you and share with you. My goodness, why aren't we all spirit-filled? More and more and more. God's personal presence. And more than that, his personal presence is an empowering presence. You're not left to slug it out in the ditches on your own. You don't have to figure it out. You're not left to your own devices. You're not left to your own wisdom. Thank God for that. I'm with you and I'm empowering you, personally present with you, and I am power to you. Man, can you imagine? What a privilege. What an honor. Aren't you glad you live in the Old Testament where that was not true? Aren't you glad you live this side of Pentecost? Thank God for this. I mean, what a privilege. What an honor. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person. And he, now how do I say this without making it wrong? But let me, let me, I hope you catch up the, the spirit in what I'm saying. He can be hurt so much. He can be pained and grieved so much that he will withdraw himself. Why would anybody want the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God whose his personal presence in your life, could you please explain to me why anybody would want that to withdraw from your life? Why? Why do you want God to be distant from you? Listen, grieving him will force him to withdraw his presence from you. The Bible says, grieve not the spirit of God. The Bible says, quench not the spirit of God. The Bible says, neglect not the gifts that are in you. The Bible says, stir them up. The Bible says, be maintaining full of the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever live in such a while away? In Ephesians 4, the context by which you grieve the Spirit, this thing in your mouth, if it gets loose, it causes the Holy Spirit pain. We criticize people. It causes the Holy Spirit pain. We pass judgment on people with our lips. It causes the Holy Spirit pain. And we have to understand that that gives emotional pain. He's a person. He's not an impersonal force. He's not an impersonal power. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he feels the emotion of grief. Don't Put him to grief. Don't give him pain. You see, there are, there are times in the history of Israel, the most devastating time is when Israel went into Babylonian exile for seven decades. But if you want to find theological reasons why God allowed his people to go into 
Babylonian captivity for 70 years, I'll give you some. Isaiah chapter 63, I think it's verses 5 to 14 or 7 to 14, give you a reason. And here's the reason. It's because his people, old King James Bible says, vexed the Holy Spirit. Wait a second, why did they go into captivity? Because they kept on vexing the Holy Spirit. That word vexed, let me give you other words. They grieved him. They caused him emotional pain. It hurt him. It's like the Holy Spirit was there all the time. Because if you read those verses in Isaiah, it, would, it, it gives this kind of teaching. It, it, it says about, you know, the spirit that was upon Moses and how this, the spirit led Moses. And you know why Moses said, Lord, if you don't give me your presence, don't take us anywhere. Remember the sin of the golden calf? And, and God says, look, that hurt me so much. I'll have to send an angel instead of me being personally present because it just hurts too much. It just hurts too much. My angel instead. And I said, no, 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 no. I can't live with that. Because Moses knew, you know what split the Red Sea? It was the presence of God. You know what brought food in the wilderness? It was the presence of God. You know what gave them victory over Egypt? It was the presence of God. It was the presence of God, the presence of God, the presence of God that did all of that. And Moses, no, we can't live without the presence of God. No. And he pleaded with God. And what did he do to make sure that God said, okay, I'll be with you? He said, no, forgive them. Lord, no, I'll die first for the people. Take me instead of the people, whatever. But we cannot possibly submit to the sentence that your presence will no longer be with us. It's your presence that works miracles. It's the presence that heals bodies. It's the presence that drives out demons. It's the presence that multiplies the bread. It's the presence that splits the Red Sea. No, we can't live without your presence. God, I'll take care of the offenders. Where are these people that are non-repentant? We'll take them out. We'll do whatever it takes. But God, we cannot possibly give up your presence. Can't do it. Moses wouldn't, could not settle for the loss of the Pentecostal blessing for the loss of the presence of God. But the reason they went into Babylonian captivity is because they just grieved the Holy Spirit one time too many. One time too many. The best way I can illustrate it for you is take stones and throw it at somebody. And throw them. And, and they begin to bruise that person. But that person is strong. So I'll take the bruisings. I'll take the stones. I'll take the hurt. I'll take the pain because I want to stick with this person. But you know, after so many bruisings, you just don't take anymore. And you begin to back off and back off and back off. When we continually grieve the Holy Spirit, he backs off. 
And what are you surrendering? You're surrendering the personal presence. You're surrendering the power that splits red seas. Why? Because we can't control our tongues. Ouch. Serious stuff, isn't it? I mean, when Paul says, don't grieve the spirit, he's quoting Isaiah 63 that I'm explaining to you. What happened in Isaiah 63? He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. Get control of your tongues. Get control of your actions. Don't let yourself be filled with bitterness and don't be filled with unforgiveness and don't be unmerciful people. Come on. Get right with God. If God's forgiven you, you forgive other people. If you don't, you're grieving. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. You don't show mercy after you yourself have received mercy. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Throw another stone at him. Hurt him. Go ahead, pick up a stone, throw it at the Holy Spirit. That's what our actions are doing. It's grieving. And Isaiah says, that's why they went into captivity. Ouch. Ezekiel, chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 25, who's in captivity, 14 months into captivity at this point, and the Lord gives him a vision of a temple and what happened in the temple. And he is going to tell in those chapters, Ezekiel 8 to chapter 11, those 3, 8, 9, 10, 11, four chapters, what happened to explain why they went into captivity. And what he sees in that vision, if you read those chapters, what you see is the Holy Spirit is present in the Holy of Holies. He dwells between the wings of the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. He's there. But at the same time, Ezekiel gets to see the idols that have also been set up in the house of the Lord. And he sees the leadership of the country worshiping idols and, and saying in their hearts, this is secret, nobody can see it. But God sees it. He sees their practice of abomination. He sees their departure from obedience to the law and the covenant. And Isaiah, sorry, Ezekiel could see it all in vision form. And then what he sees, when this behavior is going on, he can't believe what he sees. But the spirit of the Lord lifts from the Ark of the Covenant from between the wings of the cherubim and it hovers over the threshold. And then he sees as they continue their sin that it goes from the threshold and the Spirit of the Lord moves again to the east gate. That if you could read this in the Hebrew language, what you see, what Ezekiel is, is, is despairing of what he's seeing, he's seeing the presence of God is on the way out. He's about to leave. And folks, when God leaves, you have no protection against your enemies. You have no covering because it's the presence that defeated your enemies. And it's the presence of God that kept you safe in the midst of the enemies. Now when Ezekiel sees the presence of the Lord begin to lift and now it moves toward the east gate. And read it in the Hebrew. It's like he's really reluctant to leave. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I can't. I don't want to leave. But he's being grieved 
and grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved repeatedly. I don't want to take any more stones, thank you very much. It's being grieved. And then the amazing thing is, now listen, oh, come on, listen to the heart of God. Just before Ezekiel sees the presence of the Lord lift and hover no longer, but get in on, get in on a chariot pulled by cherubims and leave out of sight. God gives a prophecy. Read it at the end of chapter 11 of Ezekiel. And he says, I'm coming back. And I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make a new temple. I'm going to speak a new law. I'm going to give a new land. But the way this is going now, it's finished. I'm gone. And then Ezekiel sees presence of the Lord, leave the city of God. And once it's gone, then the enemies, the Babylonians are in, and it is, how, what word do I want to talk about it without swearing? It is just total destruction. Merciless destruction. They've lost the presence of God. But remember the promise. I'll be back with a new covenant. Come on now. You talk about God's mercy when he is beat up with all the grieving and the stones we've thrown at him. As he's about to leave, it's still a heart of compassion. I'm going to be back and change this. That's our God. That's his nature. That's his character. What a God we serve. And then Ezekiel 40 to 48, he has that vision of a new temple. And you know the story. Chapter 43, I think it is, that he sees from the east side, there's something that coming out from the, the temple, some water. Remember the story? And the angel says, come on, Ezekiel, take a look at this. And he looks at it and just starts out just a little bit. He says, let's go out a thousand cubits. And they go out a thousand cubits. Step into it, Ezekiel. Wow. Up to my ankles. Let's go another thousand cubits. Come on. Wow, it's up to my knees. Come on, Ezekiel. Let's go another thousand. Come on. Come on. Up to his waist. Ah, Come on, Ezekiel. Can you go another thousand cubits? Come on. Another thousand I can't touch the bottom anymore. I have to swim. And that's what God wants to do with a new restoration, with a new heart, with a new law, with a new covenant. What amazing God it is. But the problem is this, is that they, they, they when's all this going to happen? When is this going to be fulfilled? When's this going to be fulfilled? Isaiah talked about how they vexed the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel showed how the Spirit of God just gradually lifted and had to depart. He says, no, I can never come back under these conditions. There has to be a new covenant. Has to be a new covenant. 
And so there's this vision of this glorious temple. There's this vision of this new covenant. There's this vision of this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit that flows like floodwaters so much so that you can't even stand it. You can't feel bottom in it. You've got to be baptized in it. You've got to be immersed in it. And he says that, that river is it's life. I mean, look at the, I mean, it, it touches the waters and they're, and they're made alive. Wait a second. You understand what he said there? He said, we're not going to call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea anymore. When that spirit, when that water hits the Dead Sea, we've got to change its name to the Live Sea. Everything's going to come to life. Everything it touches comes to life. It's vitality. Everything's going to come to life. The trees that get its water, they'll bear fruit every month. Their leaves will not wither nor fade. Everything they touch is brought to life. So when the exile was finished from Babylon, and they start going back under Ezra and under Nehemiah, and there's Zerubbabel and there's Joshua, the son of Shealtiel, is the high priest, and there's Zerubbabel, the governor, and, and they start rebuilding the temple. And, 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 the, and the, the, the prophecies of Ezekiel are, are ringing in their ears. They're just waiting. Because you see, when, when Moses built the tabernacle, when he was finished, you know what happened? The presence of God came in a thick cloud. Even Moses, who talked to God face to face, can't even go in because the presence of God is so thick in that place. You see it, the sin in the Garden of Eden. Man was banished from the presence of God. And God was not happy about that. And so in Exodus, he redeems the people. I want to bring you to myself. Here's my goal stated repeatedly in the book of Exodus, that I might dwell in your midst, that I might dwell in your midst, that I might dwell in your midst. I want to take up residence. And I know there's this problem of sin, but I'll tell you what, how about I give the sacrifices and so forth in the day of atonement to take care of the problem of your sinfulness so that I can dwell in your midst. And God's stated goal is I want to dwell in you, dwell in you, dwell in you. I want my presence to be with you. I want my personal presence to be with you because you are my people and I am your God. I want my presence to be with you. And so he gives the whole tabernacle with all the sacrifices so his presence could be with us. And then when Moses finishes building it, read the last verses of Exodus 40. The cloud, when the work was completed, the cloud came and the presence of God came back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then you know through history, off and on with the children of Israel, you get to the time of King Solomon and King Solomon also builds a temple. And when he finishes building it and they're dedicating it, tell me what happened. Once again, the cloud of his glory, the presence of the Lord entered that temple. So much so that those 120 Levites that were trying to worship couldn't worship anymore because there was such a presence of the living God. The Bible says they could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. The presence of God was there in the temple. God wants to dwell 
Then Isaiah says what happens to the temple. Ezekiel says what happens to the temple and the presence of God. But there's this glowing testimony, this glowing prophecy, how God is going to give a new temple and and bring a new law and a new covenant and a new heart to people. And so the exiles from there go back out of Babylon and they go back to their homeland and they start rebuilding. And you could read the story in Ezra chapter 3. And then they build it and the foundation is laid and there's no presence didn't happen the younger people who knew nothing of the old temple of Solomon that had the presence see the new foundation and they rejoice but the older people who had memories They cried their eyes out. And you as a listener, the Bible says, couldn't tell the difference between those who cried for joy and those who cried with disappointment. But they cried so loud, you could hear them a long way off. Where is the presence? Where is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy? Where is the presence? And then what you have, centuries go by. Now, come on, church. Are you ready to shout with me here? The centuries go by. Let me tell you, there's a temple, all right. Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll build it again. Come on, there's a temple. There's a temple. There is a temple. They didn't know what he was talking about. Oh, it was 46 years it took Herod to build this temple. You're going to build in three days. They didn't know. Even his disciples didn't get it that he was talking about his body. Hallelujah. And they destroyed the temple of the Lord. They put it on a cross. But have I got good news for you? Come on. Have I got good news for you? Three days later. Three days later. He was raised. Jesus rose from the dead. And then he spent 40 days on planet earth talking with those disciples about the message of the kingdom. He says, now let's take up where we left off before they put me on that cross and before I was raised from the dead. We've got some stuff to finish up here because I'm leaving, boys. And you're going to have to take this. But you don't have to take it by yourself. I'm gone. And you need me to go. You need me to go because right now I'm localized. (laughs) I'm subject to time and space. You boys, don't be filled with sorrow because I'm going. You need me to go because when I go, I'm sending the presence. Ten-day prayer meeting. 120 were praying in the upper room. And the wind started to blow. And just like the glory came and filled the tabernacle of Moses, just like the glory came and filled the temple of Solomon, Ezekiel's prophecy began to be fulfilled. There is a new temple. You're it. We are the temple.
And when the work was finished, the glory came. And let me tell you, church, when Jesus ascended, he died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended. The work was finished. And when the work was finished, the glory came. And the presence of God was there in that upper room. And the personal presence of God has been given back. I believe in Pentecost. Thank God for the presence. I don't take it for granted. Now please, church, do not grieve him. Don't banish him with our bad attitudes. Don't banish him from our assemblies with our loose tongues. Don't be flippant with our hearts. He is a Holy Spirit. Treat him with respect. Don't banish him. Don't banish him. Don't grieve him. Because this is the power of God. This is the voice of God. This is the revelation of God. This is where faith is birthed. This is where revelation is received. This is where power for miracles happens. It's all in the personal presence of God's empowering Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. He's your personal guide. Jesus no longer is localized. In the gift of the Spirit, he's everywhere. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Jesus that walked on the shores of Galilee is present in this room right here, right now. He's here. The same Jesus is here. The same miracles are possible right here in this room because the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God the Father and God the Son, and he's here. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve him. Anything you read about in the Gospels is possible because it's the same voice, same heart, same compassion, same Jesus. I'm glad he went so that I can know him everywhere. At any time, in any space, in any location. The personal presence of Jesus is here. We need Pentecost. We need the power of his presence. We really do. You will be tested. I'm going to go back to the story of Jesus. You will be tested if you have a servant's heart because God wants to trust you and he wants to trust me. But how many know you don't trust anybody unless they first meet your approval? To be trusted, you must be tested. 
And so after being filled with the Holy Spirit, don't be surprised that you go through testings. Don't be surprised. Why is this happening to me? I'll tell you why, because God wants to see what you're like inside your heart. He knows what you're like, but he wants you to know what you're like inside your heart when you're under stress, when you're under pressure. He wants to know what you're like. And so as soon as Jesus came out of the baptism of John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is send him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And people would say to me, and some of you heard me say this before, that can't be true. The Spirit would not lead me into the wilderness. That's a dry place. He wouldn't take me through such circumstances, will he? Please, would you go to the Greek? I know you got a concordance with the Greek. Can you go to the Greek and tell me that it does not say the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness? And so I am so glad all of you asked me to do that. And let me tell you, you are right. In the Greek language, it does not say the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. It says he drove him into the wilderness. It's a much stronger word than lead. Not optional. No choice. God wants to know if he can trust you with his presence, with his gifts, with his anointing. And what he's testing for, if you have a servant's heart, because in the kingdom of heaven, the king has to be a servant. It's power to serve. It's not power to be recognized. And so he's going to start examining your heart and you're going to go through situations you've never gone through in your life before. Just to see if you want to be served, if you have some pride, if you want recognition, or can you die to yourself entirely? Can you be completely selfless? You don't care who gets the credit for anything. Are you dead to yourself or not? And there's going to come probings into your heart to see if you got it because God is going to give is power to people who die to themselves. If we want to grow in the spirit, grow in the anointing, humble yourself. If you want to grow in the knowledge of the things of God, be broken and contrite before him. That's how we're going to grow. And so God takes us through things to see if you will be broken before him, to see if you will lay down your will, to, say, to see if you will be submissive, to see if you will be teachable. And how do we learn that? Go back to where I started tonight. How you will learn that is simple. Are you going to unite the experience of the Spirit with the Word? Are you going to bring them together? This is how it worked with Jesus. This is how we're going to demonstrate to God that we're humble, is by constantly submitting to the Scripture. Now, the devil is out there. He's saying, hey, God the Father sent him to me. Isn't that nice? (laughs) And he looks at Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God. Well, that word if is a strong word. Only two letters in the English language, but my goodness. It's a bit of sarcasm. You, the son of God, what a joke. You called into ministry. Have you looked in the mirror lately? You? On mission trips? Come on, get a grip with life. You? I mean, it's sarcasm. It's, 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 it's meant to demean you. Who do you think you are? You know, were you, were you born in a barn or something? And Jesus would say, yeah, I haven't, yeah, yeah. You know, 
you know, you're from Nazareth of all places. Anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, I'm from Nazareth, you know. I mean, it's just sarcasm, just, but, but it's also to make you doubt what God just said. This is my beloved son. And the devil says, well, if you're God's son, it's to, to doubt, to cause you to doubt. But here's what Satan said. If you're the son of God, you're sure a poor excuse for the son of God. Hey, Jesus, have you looked in the mirror? When's the last time you ate? 40 days ago. Um, is this how God treats his sons? God who owns the cattle on a thousand hill won't let you eat? You're tired? You're weary? Where's the power? You're supposed to be a king. Do you look like a king right now? You look like a wretched mess, Jesus. So tell you what, if you're the son of God, both you and I know that you created the heavens and the earth. You spoke, and the heavens were. You spoke, and the earth was, because all things were created by the word of his power. There's nothing that was made that was not made by Jesus, the Son. He spoke, and everything was created. So Jesus, please tell me, with all that power at your disposal, why are you hungry, weary, and tired, and wore out? And why do you submit to this kind of thing from your father? What kind of a God is this anyway? I mean, all of this must be behind that accusation, if you're the son of God. So why don't you take the power that you have to create something out of nothing? And why don't you give a command to these stones to be made bread? You don't have to go hungry. Listen carefully to the hidden insinuations behind this. Listen carefully. Use your power to serve your own needs. Use your power to serve yourself. Think of yourself, not of the condition of the world to which you have been sent. Do something for yourself. How many of us would have failed that one and said, well, that's a good idea. I really don't need to be hungry. Listen, if you would take your power, your gift, and your authority and serve yourself with it, you've just proved to God you don't have the heart of a servant. Servants do not worry about themselves. If you are the servant of the Lord, I can promise you, you don't have to take things into your own hands. God will take care of you. You don't have to take it into your own hands. God will take care of you if you're his servant. How did Jesus overcome the temptation? You see, I've heard this story taught wrong. We beat the devil by quoting the scripture at him. Go for it. He'll quote more back to you, and he knows it better than you. He knows it inside and out. He's been around for a few thousand years. He knows it far better than you. Your problem is not so much knowing the scripture, it's that obeying the scripture. Christians know a whole lot more Bible than they obey. 
I say that one again? We know a whole lot more Bible than we obey. You know you're supposed to forgive people, but uh, he hurt me so much I feel justified in carrying that grudge for at least two days before I forgive. Uh, excuse me? You do? Excuse me, you do? Come on. No, you don't. That's called blatant disobedience. We know a whole lot more Bible than we obey. We know how we should behave, but we let ourselves get away with things anyway. We don't hold ourselves accountable to the scripture. We know a whole lot more than we obey. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Oh, I'm just tired tonight. Excuse me? And on, I, I, I can go on and on and on, but we've got to be people of obedience to the Scripture because the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him, we're told, in the book of Acts. Jesus did not defeat the devil by quoting the Bible at him. Jesus defeated the temptation not by quoting the Scripture as much as submitting to the Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy, he says, Mr. Devil, sir, let me tell you something. The Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he proceeds to give Satan a Bible lesson on the subject of fasting. Why? Devil, you should try it. It's good for you. No, 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 no. Of course not. What he was doing is this. The purpose of fasting is not to go without food. The purpose of fasting is to condition yourself so you're concentrating on hearing the voice of God. And if you cannot hear the voice of God and you're not hearing with clarity and God's not speaking to you, then maybe you need to set aside a time where you set yourself off from a lot of responsibilities and you concentrate on hearing God, and it may require some physical fasting, the purpose of it is to hear God speak to you. All right? That's why we fast. You don't live by bread, but if the voice of God is scarce in your life, then it's time for you to fast. That's the teaching. I could quote you... Job 24, I could quote you a variety of other scriptures. You know, I've esteemed the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Uh, Job 23, I think it is, not 24. Um, there's lots, lots of scriptures, you know. My, my tears have been my meat day and night. I, I, I can't eat unless I hear from you, God. And if I don't have your presence, I can't eat. You know, there's many, many scriptures that talk about a deep, deep longing of the heart that is so real that there's no way you can stuff yourself <laughs> You've got a different appetite, an appetite for the presence of God that takes over. You know, and you're seeking God. What Jesus did was this. Satan, let me tell you, I'm just expanding the, the, the conversation so we understand the story. Satan, I can't do what you're suggesting because I'm here in the wilderness to pray. And in prayer, I'm asking my father questions. Where do I preach? When do I preach? To whom do I preach? Show me. Because the motto of my life is I'm not going to say anything unless I hear you say it. I'm not going to do anything 
unless I get the instructions for you. I will initiate nothing of myself. I've come to do your will, not impose my ideas upon what your will is. I'm here to hear you because I will not act or function or move outside of your speaking to me. I'm here to hear you. Now, Satan, that's why I'm in the wilderness here, and that's why I'm fasting, because I want to hear my Father's voice give me the directions I need, because I now understand that my message is the kingdom of heaven. I know that I'm the king, but I also know this, that to be the king, I have to be the servant. So I'm asking my Father how all this plays out and what decisions I need to make and where I need to go and what I need to do. Now, Satan, if I do what you suggest... Yes, I am hungry. Yes, I am tired. Yes, I am weary. Yes, it is exhausting to pour yourself out day after day after day after day, calling out, and there's no answer coming back. Yes, it is exhausting to do all of this. Yes, there's a price to pay when you're pressing in prayer, and it does get exhausting at times. And You do get mentally and physically and emotionally wore out, pouring yourself out to God and crying out to God, and it is exhausting. But Satan, I'm telling you something. I haven't heard God speak to me back yet what I need to hear. And therefore, for me to do what you are suggesting, that I should use this power to serve myself, you are asking me to disobey the commands of the scripture, and listen, Satan, the scripture commands me that if I'm not hearing God, it's time for me to fast, and if I break that fast, I am disobeying the commands of the scripture, so Satan, take a hike. I am submitting myself to the scriptures, and I will be obedient to the scriptures. And that's what he was doing in all three temptations. He was submitting himself to the teaching of the scriptures, And that's what I say to Pentecostal people, charismatic people, spirit-filled people, full gospel people, whatever name you want to call yourself where you say we've got this extra measure of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you this much, bring your experience into conformity to doctrine and theology. Bring it into conformity to the commands of Scripture. Because we're in error if we have the spiritual experience, but we don't have the submission to the scripture, you're in error. And your Pentecostal charismatic experience will lead you astray and you will disintegrate. You'll end up a casualty that goes to church nowhere. Bring your experience of the spirit into conformity with obedience to the scriptures. It's word and spirit. It's been that way from the very beginning. The creation story begins that way. Darkness is upon the face of the deep, and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The next verse, and God said, spirit and word. Right from the beginning, we have it right at the beginning of creation, That's what our Christian life experience is to be, spirit and word, right from the beginning. And we cannot emphasize one against another. So it has been the burden, it has been the passion of my heart to bring people into the reality of the encounter with a living God, to know the power of the Holy Spirit. Come on, church. God's personal presence is in the new temple. And it's equally my passion 
I got to teach this. I got to teach this with everything within me. I have to. I cannot face the Lord on judgment day without saying I've given my whole life to teach this to people. I dare not face him because I've been given that assignment. I dare not face him without everything in my power to do it. You need to know your Bibles. I need to submit to them and walk it out. You need good doctrine. You need sound doctrine. You need good theology. You need books by people who are scholars who have spent their life in the scriptures, not the latest fad that's out there that's sweeping through the church. You need good, solid theology and doctrine. And that takes effort. It takes effort. Because you need to know it, but you need to live it, and you need to submit to it and walk it out in daily life in obedience. And we can bring the Spirit and the word together in people's lives, then watch out world. Revival has come. Revival has come. Thank God for the day of Pentecost when the finished work was completed and the glory came to the temple again, just like Ezekiel said. Let it be a river that gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because out of our bellies shall flow rivers of living water. We need to be people of his presence, of his spirit. Just talking to you freely tonight on my heart, the convictions that I have, the burdens that I have. Lord, give us teachers. Give us proclaimers of the message of the kingdom. Give us that anointing. Give us the ability to repent when we keep grieving the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.